0: Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. So I'm here with Robin Waterfield, who is a British classical scholar, translator, editor, and writer. He's the author of many books about the ancient world, including Why Socrates Died: Dispelling the Myths, Olympia: The Story of the Ancient Olympic Games, which which came out in 2018, and most recently Creators, Conquerors, and Citizens: A History of Ancient Greece, which also came out in 2018. Uh, your resume is quite extensive. Is there anything else you'd like to add, or that I left out?
1: <laughs> no, as you say, it's extensive. There'd be no end to it. <laughs>
0: okay. Yeah, it's funny, I, you know, um, when I was researching you, and I went to your website and everything, I was like, wow, okay, there's a lot of options of different things we could talk about here. But we sort of, um, I think, decided to touch on a couple subjects. uh, And I might even break it up into two short episodes, even. Um, uh, First, to talk a little bit about the Olympic Games, which you wrote a book about in 2018. And then also uh, to talk some about the historical figure of Socrates, who I've always been interested in. He's one of the great names of ancient Greece. And I thought that um, I'm always interested when I see stuff that says, okay, this is kind of what everyone thinks happened. And this is kind of the legends that have built up around something, but here's what the history actually tells us and the sources tell us. So I'll be interested to talk about that as well. So I guess my first question um, getting back to the Olympic games is simply What led you to write a book about the Olympic Games and why did you view that topic as an important thing to dive to dive into?
1: Well, um, I've always been interested in sport. I was for quite a long while a very serious long distance runner, for one thing. Um, And I I, I wasn't actually me who who, you know, prompted the opportunity to write about it. it was a publisher who approached me. And I simply leapt at the chance. That was all. It was no more than that. But as I say, I leapt at the chance because, yeah, it's perfect for me. I wrote a book way back. My first ever history book, because I used to do philosophy more, was a book on Athens in the uh, early noughts, I think. And... um, that was, t- yes, it was the early notes because it was time more or less to coincide with the Olympics at Athens in 2004.
0: Okay. Uh, and I
1: wrote a little bit about the Olympics for that, and that simply whetted my appetite. So as I say, when this publisher, and the publisher's name is Head of Zeus. How could I resist writing a book for a publisher called Head of Zeus? That's was great. great. <laughs> wow,
0: that's awesome, that's awesome. So I guess starting out, diving into the history of it all, um, can you talk a little bit about um, sort of how the Olympic Games started or, or what we know about how the Games were, were founded and and when they were founded?
1: Well, we know very little is the short answer. It's mostly guesswork. And of course, there's no uh, contemporary writing about it because we're talking about way back in the Archaic period in the 8th century uh, BC, uh, you know, two centuries, as it were, before uh, or 100 years or so before writing was invented so later greek authors they're only writing guesses as well you know we're guessing and they're guessing Um, but my okay let's let's compare a couple of other places some games started in commemoration of a dead Person, they started as funerary games, and the most famous literary games of those are in Book 23 of Homer's Iliad, where you get the funeral games for Patroclus, uh, Achilles' best friend. Um, And uh, by the time, by the late archaic uh, and the classical period, you've got four or five major international games around Greece. And two of those, the Isthmian and the Nemean Games, were both in commemoration of a fallen hero. So some people speculate that maybe that's how the Olympics started. But but that's difficult because there's no really good candidate for the hero that they would be commemorating. Now everybody knows the story of Pelops and Oinomaus, how um, how um, Pelops wanted to marry Oenomaeus' daughter, Oenomaeus challenged him to a chariot race, and in the most common version of the myth, um, Pelops suborned Oenomaeus' stable hand, so that the wheel of Oenomaeus' chariot fell off, and Oenomaeus was dragged to his death, and so Pelops won the girl. Uh, And he is a hero in Olympia. One of the most important and and most ancient um, buildings there was a very big a uh, shrine to Pelops. And he gave his name to the whole Peloponnese. The Peloponnese literally means the island of Pelops. So he is a very important Peloponnesian and Olympian hero. But he's involved with, you know, he he, he did he did a chariot race. And When the Olympics started, what one of the things we do know for sure is it did not involve a chariot race because we know when the chariot race started, I can't remember off the top of my head, let's say it was 680, I think it was 680. Uh, And before that, it was only running races. It started off just as a sprint race and then they added on a couple of longer races um, after, I mean, for the first 60 or so years of the Olympics, it was just a single sprint race. So, So it probably wasn't in commemoration of a hero, I, this is, this is my guess, and, and really it's no better than anybody else's guess, but there was a very important oracular shrine in Olympia. Um, it was sacred to Zeus, and it seems to have specialized in um, military oracles. You know, if you were thinking of raiding your neighbor to steal some of his cattle which was a fairly typical thing that was going on in archaic greece then you might consult the oracle and say am i going to be successful at this and my feeling and we don't know very much about this oracle because it was very soon eclipsed by you know the great oracles at dodona and uh, delphi uh so we don't know very much about it but my my, my guess is that people that is high-ranking members of the wealth uh, elite of archaic Greece would consult the oracle. And then if they got the result they wanted, if they did succeed in stealing their neighbor's cattle or whatever, or taking over a bit of disputed territory, they would then uh, celebrate by with the expenditure of energy. They, they would be thanking Zeus by offering him an expenditure of their energy. And as I say, it started simply as a stade race, uh, the stadium at um, at Olympia is 192 meters long. It's not the same length. If you go, you know, if you go visit the archaeological site of Delphi and places like that, that's a shorter one. Uh, But it's 192 meters at Olympia. And that was all they did at the beginning. They just ran one length of that in competition. As I say, gradually then over the years more and more uh events got added on to that but so my my guess is w- it would be a celebratory thing and an expenditure of energy to offer that to zeus in thanks for his advice or whatever that the oracle had given
0: okay okay and how did the game sort of develop from the archaic period into i mean when when we think about classical athens or something like that which a lot of people envision as being ancient greece yeah at that point in time were the were the olympic games uh kind of a, a a major part of the culture were you know was that the height of the ancient olympic games
1: um yeah not just the olympics but the the big four or five games were all very very central but um central really only for the first several hundred years of olympic history they were important really only to the wealthy elite there was a great deal of poverty in ancient greece and 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 most people were simply busy trying to put food on the table they didn't have time to train for a leisure activity like sport they didn't have time to travel to olympia which wasn't a very easy place to get to they didn't have the time or the money to you know to pay trainers by the time that you know there were professional trainers around and things like that so it was very much an elitist occupation Um, Mm -hmm. it's possible that as i say after about 300 years or so there are signs that some states started funding people to go there Uh, So perhaps, you know, it was moving, trickling down from the wealthy elites to uh, lower strata of society were able to, some members of the strata of society were able to compete. But it was still very much the ethos of of the Olympics was very elitist and um, particularly the equestrian events, because, again, Greece being a poor country, there was very, very little good pasture land for horses with the result that ownership of a horse was kind of showy. It was like owning a Ferrari or a, you know, Maserati today. Hey, I got a horse, you know. And of course, the poor people simply could not participate in that. The the greatest, you know, of course, of Alcibiades, this sort of uh, spoiled brat, brilliant, I don't know, Athenian at the end of the fifth century. And if I tell you that, you know, having said that ownership of one or two horses was a sign of, of, of uh, great wealth, he, for the Olympics of 416, he entered seven four horse chariots teams, that's 28 horses. Actually, he only owned 24 of them. He borrowed four of them. But but even so, I mean, that was such a sort of an arrogant gesture. And he and he went to the Olympics and set up his pavilion and uh, and um, served his guests off gold platters and things like this. He was a great show so off. The Olympics was, it was a place for elite display. I see. That's the thing. They were competing against each other. They were oiling their bodies. So they looked absolutely gorgeous, you know, and they were muscled and they'd been training for a long time. It was a place for elite display.
0: Okay. Interesting. Cause I remember in, in researching sort of the, um, the dynasty that Alexander the great was a part of in Macedon, that they had these kind of legends of their Kings going to the Olympic games and winning chariot races and things like that. I mean, um,
1: yeah, I happen to be sceptical about that, Patrick. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only there's only actually okay. We know we know Alexander's father Philip II went to the Olympics. We know he won the four horse chariot race in in three five six. Okay. Um, the only previous Macedonian who has re, is reported to have taken part of the Olympics was Alexander the First, at the early in the um, in the fifth century BC. So roundabout, I think it was the, might have been the Olympics of 480 or something he was trying to get into. Um, and there is a report that he succeeded. He's, um, um, the story goes that he succeeded in persuading the Olympic judges that as a Macedonian, he was sufficiently Greek to take part in these quintessentially Greek games. Right. And I'll come back right. to that in a second. But, um, in fact, the story is false. Um, uh, it was proved false by one of the great Macedonian experts called Jean Borza, uh, some of whose books you might have read. Yes. yes. Uh, because and it's uh, the reasons we think it's false are partly because no other Macedonian apparently did that for the next 130 years until Philip II. So if 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 he'd already proved that Macedonians were Greek enough to take part in the Olympics, why didn't nobody else do it? Uh, and secondly, because these um, Greek, the Helanodikai was a was a, a committee in Olympia. One of whose job, they, their job was to supervise the final training of the athletes, to weed out the unfit, to make sure that a really glorious competition was going to be put on. Uh, but one of their judges was one of their jobs was also to assess to make sure that the, all the participants were fully Greek. And in good standing in their set in their cities. Now, the earliest the Helano seem seemed to have existed was uh, after Alexander I. So the story that he managed to persuade them that he was enough, he was Greek enough to take part in the Olympics is a sort of a projection, a retrojection backwards from practice that was happening later. I, I just don't believe it. I think Philip II was, was the first, and of course he was so powerful he could basically force his way in. <laughs> yeah. I mean he was he was the effective master of of Greece or soon would be. Um, and then after that yes, then after that we have uh, plenty of Macedonians taking part. Not Alexander himself. you know the story that he was he was apparently no mean sprinter and he was asked, uh, you know why don't you why don't you run in the Olympics Alex um, And he said, only if my rivals are also kings.
0: Right. I have read that. Um, So fascinating. So you you mentioned kind of this idea of quintessentially Greek. And I just, uh, you know, one thing that I find interesting about the Olympics, I've read that the Olympics was one of the the games, the the kind of the Pan-Hellenic games, or however you want to describe it, along with the religion, some of the religious ideas with Homer and the Iliad and all of that. are some of the things that actually gave these different city-states a sense that they were somehow part of the same the same culture? Can you can you talk a little bit about that and kind of how this worked? Because obviously the different you know there were these different rival city-states that uh, didn't necessarily have the same conception today we have of ancient Greece in quotes. So.
1: No, it's a really, really good question. Uh, actually, it is the central thread to um, the book of mine, you mentioned at the beginning, Creators, Conquerors and Citizens. That is exactly the, the issue or problem that I address. Why is it that the Greeks were at one level perfectly well aware that they were all you know, kind of cousins, they were all kin, they they worship pretty much the same gods, they dressed pretty much the same, they went to war in pretty much the same way, they spoke pretty much the same language. Even Macedonian was was simply a very, very obscure dialect of, of Greece. Uh, so they and they, you know, I mean, for instance, Athenian pottery was welcome all over the Greek world. So culturally, they had this identity, but politically, as you say, they they were they were rivalrous. They were, they were fighting each other, you know, most spectacularly in the in the Peloponnesian War and then the Corinthian War that, that, that followed it. Those were two, you know, Greek. We would call them civil wars, but they wouldn't quite call them civil wars. So they, it's 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 really strange. And the Olympics was definitely one of the places where the focus was. Well, of course, it was on rivalry because you were trying to beat your opponents. But at the same time, it was a, it was one of the places where there was a recognition: yes, we are all Greek, and and the institution of the uh, Decai, the judges who were to assess people's Greekness, was part of what cemented that feeling in the Olympics. We're all Greeks here together. We're worshiping, you know, Zeus uh, by our expenditure of energy or or whatever it was, and. Um, yeah but it's a real puzzle uh so that spirit what i called in my athens book the olympic spirit was very slow to evolve gradually that feeling of cultural unity which was fostered at these at the international games the panhellenic games as you correctly called them gradually evolved into political unity but it was very gradual and the political unity was more commonly um imposed by others by macedonians in the first instance by romans in the next instance it was more more commonly imposed by others than than, as it were freely chosen by the greeks themselves they would occasionally enter into big alliances which which made a you know kind of unity but first of all they were hegemonial alliances which meant that there was always somebody at the top who was giving orders athens for the delian league sparta for the peloponnesian league and so on and so forth um so they formed these alliances but as i say first of all they were healing money and secondly they were alliances designed to make war on other greeks <laughs> so they weren't really a form of unity that were a form of sort of temporary unity at, at best but gradually as i say, the macedonians then began to see the greeks as a whole, as Greeks, and the Romans certainly saw the Greeks as a whole, as Greeks. And it was rather as a that, as a result of that, that the Olympic spirit of of Greek unity gradually evolved until, um, you know, you had, a, under the Romans, you then had a common sense of, of Greekness.
0: Did Did it work kind of at all like it does in the current day where you know, if you had an athlete from Athens, were they representing Athens versus an athlete from Thebes representing Thebes? Was it anything like that? Or was it really more about just individual athletes and kind of making a name for themselves or kind of, yeah, how did did that work? Do we know?
1: Yeah, really, I mean, primarily it was individuals. Um, and, you know, obviously, if there were two individuals from Athens competing in the same race, they would both be trying to to beat the other, um, you know, just as just as much as they were trying to beat the Spartans and the Thebans and the Corinthians and everybody else. Uh, but. Um, and I would I would say, again, a guess that in the early, let's say, the first 150 years or 100 years of the Olympics, It was only individuals, that was all it was. But then at a certain point, when the games became more formalized, um, as an athlete, let's say, stepped into um, the arena before his event, he was announced by a herald or a town crier, you know, um, he was announced as, let's say, this is Ariston of Athens, or, you know, this is Fred from Corinth. (coughs) <coughs> I should have got myself a drink of water before coming up here um, but uh, so by then yes the state is beginning to get some reflected glory um, and that was important politically the, the, the Greek states were always rivalrous they were always trying to gain a higher position than, than their neighbours in the pecking order of states obviously the best way to do that was to defeat somebody in battle but having a good number of Um, successful athletes at the International Games was was, reflected greatly on the state. And again, let's go back to Alcibiades in 416. It wasn't just that he did this astonishing feat of entering seven four-horse chariot races, but he won. And that meant that he had broken up a long run. He brought to an end a long run of um, Spartan victories in that the most prestigious event of the games, the most elite event of the games anyway. Um, So, and Sparta and Athens were, you know, more or less at war at the time. Okay. So uh, it was a great coup and Athens was mightily pleased with him for it.
0: So the (laughs) chariots were the most prestigious event. And you also mentioned, I think, just running and sprinting and-
1: um... Yeah. the, the the state the state like like the modern Olympics the um, the hundred meter you know is, is 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 something everybody looks out for and that was the same in the in the ancient Olympics because um, quite soon possibly even right from the the start of the Olympics no when when the Greeks I- initiated the Olympia dating system you know that four-year dating system. The first Olympiad was seven seven six to seven seven two, the second Olympiad was seven seven two to seven six eight, and so on. Um, when they initiated that, they named the Olympiad after the winner of the state race. So it would, so that was a gr- that was the prestige of the of the, of the state race. Um, but in terms of um, expenditure of money, and possibly training and um, and everything else. It was the fours, Chariot race was was the big one.
0: Interesting. And yeah. I like and I like
1: the attraction of that to Formula One. Okay. Uh,
0: okay.
1: You know, you're you're seeing very expensive uh, vehicles being driven with consummate skill, and you're secretly hoping for a smash up. Okay. I <laughs> uh,
0: I like Formula One. I haven't watched. A lot of it it's you know it's not- I
1: mean, incredibly boring you're just there and it goes <laughs> zoom, past you and that's it i mean what's to see you know?
0: what is the i like the one where they go through the cities i don't know what that if that's that,
1: i don't know i don't know i don't know enough about it patrick okay. honestly um <laughs>
0: well so i guess my 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 uh, one of my last questions as it relates to the olympics is kind of what was the chrono the chronology of all of this i mean you have the the game starting sometime during the archaic age you know and then in the classical era they're you know uh they're kind of at their height i think and so what um or, or correct me if i'm wrong but kind of how did this evolve and I, it, it, you know in the past i've read that at some point there was a break and we didn't really have the olympics again until reasonably you know uh close to our own time so what, you know, how did the games evolve and, and I guess at some point go into decline?
1: Well, okay, Let, let's, the traditional starting date was 776. That was decided upon by a scholar called Hippias um, in the uh, late fifth century. And as I say, that kickstarted the Olympiad system and uh, archeology span kind of bears it out. Uh, We don't know how he arrived at that date, he probably, you know, separate states kept lists, like in Argos there was a list of the priestesses of Hera and in Athens there was a list of the uh, archons each year and things like that. So he probably compared all these lists and inferred or deduced that they started around in 776. And archaeology kind of bears that out. Maybe not quite that early, but yeah, certainly something enormous, certainly ath- something athletic was going on by the middle of the 8th century. How it evolved is is going to be difficult for me to talk about off the top of my head, because it would involve referring to lots of dates. But as I said before, gradually you got uh, other events added. We started off with just the sprint race. By, let's say, um, you know, 700, you've got a couple of other running races, Uh, 20 years later, you've got a chariot race introduced, probably the four horse chariot race. Later, you've got a two horse chariot race introduced. Later, you've got boys events uh, introduced. So that, as you say, by the late fifth and by the fourth century, it was um, a five day event uh, packed with sporting events but packed also with a great deal of religious ritual it was one has to remember this was a religious ritual it's one of the strange things one of the things that's quite difficult for us to get our heads around in ancient greece is that i mean for instance going to the theater was part of a religious ritual it was part of a festival to to the god dionysus doing athletics was part in at, at olympia was sacred to zeus was part of a religious festival to zeus uh so there were lots of sacrifices and all of that going on as well as the events. So as you say, yes, I mean, I, I can read out from my book if I can find it quickly, all the events that took place, but it might be might be rather dull. Um, how and when did they decline? Well, they were eventually, the games were eventually closed in 393 by the Emperor Theodosius the Great, who was a Christian emperor of Rome. And um, of course, this was a festival to a pagan god. So he wanted to put an end to it. Um, it's but it's pretty clear that it had already been declining for at least a couple of a hundred years before that. Buildings were no longer being repaired. Um, there's very little evidence of horse races, uh, uh, chariot races taking place there. They might have been, but we have very but you know, there's just nobody was writing about this stuff. After the Roman conquest of Greece, you see, historians' uh, focus shifted onto the Roman empire and away from what was happening in Greece. So we'd kind of know less and less about what was happening in in Greece and that includes the Olympics. So they'd certainly been in decline for let's say from about 200 um, AD, 200 of this era onwards. Uh, Up until then, I think they were probably flourishing. Uh, There were hiccups um, when the Roman uh, general Sulla um invaded Greece in order to punish particularly Athens for siding with um, the king Mithridates VI, who had risen up against Rome in the, in the east. Um, he plundered uh, the wealth of Olympia because all these sacred sites had massive wealth from dedications that were left them and you know bronze and gold and silver dedications and things like that. And Sulla plundered it. And plundered it so thoroughly that the Olympics of, I think it was eighty-eight, couldn't take place.
0: Wow. Uh,
1: so there were so there were hiccups, but but basically basically it was it was it was running up until up until three hundred ninety-three, to a certain extent in some form or another, and then then there was nothing. Then in in the nineteenth century of our era some games, particularly in England, which were really little more than rural fairs, started to put on pretentious airs and call themselves, you know, the Shropshire Olympics and things like that. And then in Athens, um, a very rich um, multi-millionaire called uh, uh, Zappas um, funded and put on international games for Greeks So kind of like the Olympics, he had a right to call them the Olympics. And then the first proper Olympics were put on in 1896, and they were the brainchild of a Frenchman um, called Pierre de Coubertin, who was, um, who looked back to ancient Greece um, in a very sort of, you know, through rose tinted spectacles. He saw it as a place where you know, mind and body had melded and produced all the perfect virtues and so on and so forth. And he wanted to revive that. And he pushed and he pushed and he spent his family fortune and so on and so forth and he did. And the modern Olympics started again in 1896, faltered a bit because 1900 and 1904 weren't very successful, but the 1912 Mm -hmm. Stockholm Olympics were really successful. And from then on, they've gone on. Wow.
0: I want to remind, uh listeners that we're talking to robin waterfield about his 2018 book olympia the story of the ancient olympic games um so i i think uh if it's okay with you um we could we could uh, start to talk a little bit about socrates and change gears a little bit does that sound okay thanks to derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode if you like the show consider leaving us a review on itunes or your podcast app Until next time.